Welcome to episode 176 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and this is the podcast of Brotherly Love. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. Hopefully people realize that when they listen to our podcast and we do this like little salutation back and forth, that this sometimes is more or less like the first time we've actually spoken voice to voice during the week. So it's actually like a real greeting. It's not like we just don't know how to start the podcast. Yeah, I mean, we don't know how to start the podcast, but there's also, (laughs) it also is a real greeting as well. That's fair. So unless, maybe we should talk about this really quick before we go headlong into affirmations and denials. If you've never like tried to record yourself having a conversation with somebody, you might not realize that any kind of normal greeting you would normally have in just a casual conversation seems so staged and cliche when there's a microphone in front of you. It does. It does. There's really no good way. That's why a lot of shows, I think, have like a staged opening greeting of some sort. Right. Because it's it's actually easier than trying to organically greet each other at the beginning of a show. So right. if we In were professionals, you... we'd have some way to open the show up, but we, we don't. So we're it, not. Yeah, we, we just this is the best we've got. So it is. You're it's welcome. better. It's better than like episode one through 30, where we just started, we just started talking to each other. (laughs) Oh, I hardly want to think about that. So, well, in the spirit of moving things along in a direction that is more focused and formal, let's do a little affirmations and denials. Would you mind starting with an affirmation? What if I said I would mind? And I was like, I do (laughs) mind. No, I'll, I'll, I'll be happy to start. So just be awkward. I have basically like three or four different kinds of affirmations that I do. There's like the theological affirmation. There's like the practical piety affirmation. Yes. There's usually some sort of like social commentary affirmation. And then there's the like, like new app that I found affirmation. And this is the new app that I found affirmation this week. (laughs) I love these. So, you know, I'm a note taker, although I don't ever really look at my notes, but I find that the act of taking notes helps me to remember things better. And one of the things that I would like to do is to begin creating like a catalog of notes that are readily accessible and easily indexed. And, you know, like there's note taking apps like like Evernote or OneNote or even Google Keep in a certain way, but they don't have a really stellar um, indexing system. You know, you can add tags, you can do folders, but a lot of that is really, really manual. So I've, I've always been looking for something that's a little bit more organic than that. And so I found an app today uh, before church. I kind of was looking through the app store, looking for uh, note taking apps. And it's a note taking app called Bear. It's only available on Mac uh, OS or on iOS devices, so your iPhone or iPad. But what's really interesting about this, and I think what I like the most, this is what drew me to it, is you can use hashtags and it automatically creates an index for you. So, for example, uh, the title of my note from Sunday School Today uh, is hashtag New Hope Community Church slash adult class slash the gifts of the Holy Spirit. 
right? Which is a really long hashtag, but the functionality of that is it creates a parent category for New Hope Community Church, which you can then drill down and it'll have a subcategory of adult class and then a subcategory for the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So next week when I do uh, the sermon and I do hashtag New Community or New Hope Community Church slash sermon slash, I probably won't do a slash, it'll have another subcategory that drills down for uh, sermons. So as you enter and add hashtags into your notes, it creates this category, this automatic categorization schema that you can then uh, rename, you can drill into, you can search. So it's, it's designed basically for you to, as you're doing your notes, to be able to identify and add keywords. And then it automatically creates the, the taxonomy or the hierarchy for you based on how you format and insert those hashtags. So I find it really slick. Um, what I'm doing is I'm actually doing a hashtag book of the Bible slash chapter. So that way, as I as I do notes, whether it's sermon notes or if I'm preparing for an episode, which we don't really do, but at once in a while we do, or if I'm taking notes for class and I put in a book of the Bible slash the chapter, it's going to automatically create this hierarchy. So I can tell you that if I went to uh, hashtag first Peter four slash four, it's going to eventually pull up every sermon, everything that I've ever referenced that I cited First um, Peter four in the uh, note. So it's called Bear. It's available for iPad, uh, iPhone, and then also if you have a Mac, it's available for a computer. It's just really slick. I just find it really useful. That's pretty legit. I mean, people who have listened to our voices for a long period of time know that we are, among other things, super nerds for note taking, whether that be yeah. in the physical form or the electronic form. And I have not heard about this before, but what immediately appeals to me is is not like the hardest point of electronic note taking, being able to go back and like find the specific notes that you're looking for. For me, that's always the challenge. And even right. in, I use Evernote, but even there you have to work very diligently to create the taxonomy yourself. So if you're saying basically by just creating the hashtag, it does it all for you yep. and it catalogs everything in a way that's going to be easily retrievable in the future. I can get, get down with that. Yeah, it's like it's a free app. Um, there are some pro features if you want to sync across devices, uh, if you want to export. They have all sorts of different kinds of exports. So you can do some exporting uh, in the free version, but you have a wider range of document types in the pro version. And like I said, it, it's just really, really simple uh, and it's really slick and it automatically creates that hierarchy for you, which is the, the biggest selling point. It uses kind of standard markdown features in terms of formatting. So it's got all your basic kinds of formatting, bold, bullet points, uh, that kind of stuff. But the main feature that really caught my attention is this uh, sort of, I won't call it like automatic hierarchy because you still have to intentionally create some of the tags. But then once you've created a tag, when you hit hashtag and start typing, it's going to prompt you for that tag. Um, and then you can combine this. Uh, you know, I have a, there's another thing I use for, for blogging once in a while. Um, I can put the link in the show notes, but it's, it's called perm ID and you can basically, uh, enter in like a document and it'll automatically scan the document and pull out keywords. And it does a pretty good job because I, we're doing, as you might've guessed from the hashtag, we're in the middle of a series in Sunday school on the gifts of the Holy spirit. 
So I copy and pasted my notes into this PermID uh, auto tagger, and it actually pulled up as one of the categories, pneumatology. So it, it actually is a pretty wide range. So you could take your notes, you could copy it into this, it would generate a list of social tags and other features, and then you could then go back and put those in as your hashtags, and it would help you with categorization. So it's just a really sweet program. I totally dig app affirmations, by the way. Yes. I think those are fantastic. Keep those yes. coming. What do you got for me today? It's really funny that you mentioned this whole idea of kind of being self-aware with respect to affirmations. I was just thinking about this this week. And, and that's partly because the affirmation that I have is one that's a little bit off the beaten path. Because oftentimes we'll say the affirmation, the whole point of it is to recommend or suggest something that you can go out and do or have access to or on your own volition can participate in. And this affirmation decidedly not that type of thing. And so what I'm affirming this week is wedding proposals and just how amazing it is to be part of one or to see one happen in real time. And I recognize that it's not like if you wanted to take us up on this, like you could just go and find a wedding proposal and really enjoy it and rejoice in it. But a wedding proposal is an amazing thing. Like no matter what kind of the, the space or the conviction of the worldview of the people involved we, we recognize that marriage itself is something ordained, instituted, and promoted by God himself. And so there's something to me that's altogether worthy of rejoicing in no matter when people basically come to the commitment of being taking on a proposal and then saying that they're willing to marry one another and be committed to one another. And so I say this because, so last night I was with my wife and she actually was the one that encouraged me to be part of this event. It was, this is going to sound so crazy to a lot of people, but it was a preview for a 5k foot race. So in other words, there was a bunch of people getting together to run the course for the race that was supposed to, is going to happen in a couple of weeks. And this was a whole event. And afterwards we actually gathered at this um, beer and like craft brewery and spirits uh, shop. And there were lots of runners there. There was a guy playing live music and the person who was in charge had, who is overseeing this whole race he said, listen, we have this hat here. Everybody write their names in the hat and I'm going to pull out a name and the person whose name I pull out will get a medal for the race and we're going to, that person will be able to reveal it to everybody to see what the medal is going to look like for this finisher's medal for the race. And so this is this amazing, apparently setup where the gentleman called the name of this guy. He came up and then he gave the medal to his girlfriend. He actually kind of like knighted her, like put it over her head and gave it to her. And then he got down on one knee and proposed to her. Nice. And the bottom line is proposals, when you get to witness them and see the joy, see the commitment, see people committing themselves to one another is just an amazing thing. And it always points me to how loving God is toward us with respect to his bride, the church and his own proposal and his promise to save us. And to see that reflected in this like small shadow, like really this slight shadow of two people committing themselves to one another is I think no matter what a beautiful thing. So if you get the opportunity to be a part of a proposal, I feel like you should just go like all out and celebrate with those people. Even if you don't even know them to like be in the same space, the same geographic environment and to see it happen is just a remarkable thing. So if it happens to you, I guess I'm just kind of saying I affirm cherishing that very thing. Yeah. Have you ever... Obviously, you've had your own proposal. Yes, I have had my own proposal. <laughs> yeah, so so you were there for that one. Have you seen or been a part of like a proposal that wasn't yours? 
Um, I don't think so. I don't believe that I have. Although, um, I mean, I'm sure that I've been at like restaurants where people like where that was happening somewhere in the restaurant. Cause I've been to like nice restaurants and that's pretty common at those places. But I don't I don't think I can remember a specific one. I will tell a, a little bit of a funny story, though. So your your little sister um, pretty early on when we were dating, not not too early on, you know, we, we knew that we were pretty serious and which direction we were going. And she said to me, you know, I want a public proposal. And I was like, a public proposal? She's like, yeah, a public proposal. And I was like, that's kind of intimidating. So yeah. the video's out there. If people want to go watch it, they can. But what's funny is uh, on the video, right, I, I, I coordinated this whole thing. And uh, it was pretty clear, I, I think, it was clear where it was going uh, long before I actually got down on one knee to propose. But it's funny because when I get down on one knee, you can actually hear an audible gasp from multiple people in the crowd because we had the whole thing videotaped. And there's right. something about the act of a man getting down on one knee to propose to a woman, even when you see it coming, that really kind of takes your breath away because it is such a, uh, it's such a symbol and such a, uh, it represents something so ingrained in human nature that right. even the most hardened secularists still there's still something that they they latch onto. It's why shows like shows like The Bachelor, which in many ways kind of like eschew any sort of like traditional notions of you know monogamy or commitment or solidarity until you get to the very end. And it's still a man getting down on one knee and proposing to a woman. And it's this big fanfare around it. So there is really, I think, I think you're latching onto something here. There's something within the human condition that just latches onto that imagery and that uh, common grace commitment that's being made that really does point to who, I think, to who God is. Yeah, there definitely is. There's, even if you know the people who are involved and you know that the answer to the question, will you marry me, is going to be yes, there's something about that act, that posture where there is humility, there is yielding, there's the uncertainty. And there's also like this idea that in that single moment, they're committing themselves to some kind of expression of love that's even transcendent to outside and beyond themselves. Yeah. And it was, in my case, I didn't know it was going to happen. And yeah, there was just something super exciting about it. And to see it in real time, it was just amazing. And so it was, and again, amongst like a bunch of runners who were, hanging out in a pub afterwards. It was just like that. I think for those two people, they were both runners, an amazing expression of who they were. My proposal to my wife, also public. And so I definitely hear your heart on all of the craziness. Uh, my wife also wanted a public proposal. Um, and I actually, I did it at church. So it, like, it's just amazing. Yeah, it, it just made me so happy. I don't know why. And it made me happy in a way that was like spiritually fulfilling, if that makes sense. In yeah. that, yes, this is how we know one of the ways in which God has kind of given us, again, this representation of the shadow of how much he loves us is that we might be able to express in some small way to humanly creatures that we also care about, that there is this same type of commitment and promise. And so for all that we can say about how marriage has been denigrated, and that certainly is true, I'm not taking that away, to be able just to participate in the purity of a moment of expression of love, and that love comes from the Father because he loved us first, I found myself surprisingly overwhelmed by two people that I actually barely knew very well, but yeah. was I was just so filled with a joy at what was happening that I was like, man, in some ways this is is it is like eschatological, it is 
spiritual, it is beautiful. And so I, I don't know, I guess is also like the affirmation. If you can get married and God has given you that person, go and do that. Maybe there's some person right now that's like, should I propose? Should I not propose? Should I propose in public? The answer is mostly and always, unless your fiance says otherwise, yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I will say this. If you're not 100% sure that the answer is going to be yes, then don't, then don't, pr- don't propose. Cause there's That's probably true. no coming back from that, but especially don't propose publicly. Cause there is no coming back from that. There are some really like cringy videos on YouTube of people making very public proposals, like these big grand gestures that then meet a no, man. I, I don't know how you, I don't know how you move forward from that, to be honest with you. No, there's no coming back. That is also good advice. Make sure yeah. you, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, so let's let's kick it over to denials real quick. What do you got? So I'm going to deny something that I, I'm, okay, I'm not a libertarian in the classic sense of the word, although as I get older and as I have more uh, understanding of how the way the world works, the more and more I just want the government to stay out of my business, right? So we recently, in the state of New Hampshire, and you're familiar with this, but most people probably are not, in the state of New Hampshire, like all of your licensing stuff comes up on your birthday. Uh, and it's right. like it's like the state of New Hampshire wants to say, happy birthday, give us all your money. So you know, there it's nice in New Hampshire. We don't pay, we don't pay sales tax for the most part. Um, most of the taxes are coming out of property and then also a few other things. But one of the right. things they do license is your vehicle. They license your car, oh, yeah. uh, not your driver's license, but your actual vehicle itself. And it was almost a thousand dollars for us to license our two cars this year. <laughs> and you know, it's like, oh, uh, and then so also sorry. I had to go renew my, I had to go renew my driver's license and I mentioned previously that like when I went to the to the DMV to do this, I watched probably a dozen or more people stand in line and then not have the proper documentation because they make it so overly complicated and burdensome to prove who you are to get these licensing. And then to sort of like top it all off, to put the put the cherry on top of this smack you in the face Sunday that the state of New Hampshire, we also got a notification from the town that we have to license our dog. And so it's like, okay, the state of New Hampshire gets to tell me what kind of vehicle I can drive. I have to pay them for the privilege of owning a vehicle. I have to pay them right. for the privilege of having an identity card to prove who I am, which I'm required by law to have to do certain things. Uh, they're going to charge me uh, to do all sorts of other stuff. And then on top of that, I have to get the state of New Hampshire's blessing and pay them a fee or the, the state, I suppose this is the city of Canaan, uh, to have a dog. And we, in, in times past, we neglected to register our dog promptly. And we actually got a notice in the mail from the city of New Hampshire that, uh, or the city of Canaan, New Hampshire, that they were going to come and take our dog if we did not license it. <laughs> And, and it's funny because uh, Ashley, my wife, your sister, said the other day that when she got that notice, she was like, this is how I die. I'm going to go down in a blaze of glory when they come to try to take my dog. <laughs> <laughs> so I, what what I'm denying against is the state's feeling that they they we owe it to them for them to give us permission to do just about anything. 
that's what licensing is. It's the state giving you permission to do something. And we have to have a license to drive. We have to have a license to own a vehicle, to have a dog, to to do this, to that, to the other thing. It, it's just lame. Like, stay out of my business. This is the live free and die state. And I just let, want you to leave me alone. Just leave Get me alone, New Hampshire. Get off my lawn. Exactly. But, it, but it, you have to license your lawn. Like, you have to mow your lawn. You have to have certain requirements there. It's like, get get off my lawn. Just Everything get off my lawn. Everything is rented, right? Yeah. When I first moved here, if, if you want a trippy experience, listeners of the Reformed Brotherhood, <laughs> look, up, so great. <laughs> look up the New Hampshire Free Staters. There, there is oh, this yeah. movement in the United States called the Free State Movement. And what it was is it was a group of people that basically took what I'm saying about basically telling the government to stay out of my business. And they cranked it up to like 11 and they actually researched which state in the union they would be able to kind of be uh, free from and then actually take over the state government and then like basically abolish the state government. And so there's like this group of people in New Hampshire that call themselves the free staters who basically want to live in a government absent any sort of state, which I don't actually think is possible. And I don't think that it's biblical, to be honest, but I'm starting to understand their perspective a little more. <laughs> this is so great. Yeah, People should actually look that up because New Hampshire is basically like a foreign country within the United States. And I, yeah. I say that not necessarily as a person that's from there, but because it is really strange. So there is no sales tax. So if you eliminate different types of taxation, of course, from a state, all that means is that they just have to find a place to get the revenue in a different way. And so when I moved out of Pennsylvania or out of Pennsylvania, when I moved out of New Hampshire to Pennsylvania, I was shocked about the vehicle registration thing because I was always so used, like you just said, to an experience that most people haven't had, which is you show up at your township office with your registration paperwork and they say something to you like, okay, so you have to write two checks today to register your vehicle. The one to the state is like $36 and the one to the town is $984. <laughs> and you yeah. just be like, how is that even possible? What are you guys doing with that? And it's on a sliding scale, depending on like the age of your vehicle, the make model, all that stuff. So it does tend to go down over time as the vehicle ages. But when I moved to Pennsylvania and they were, I got the thing in the mail and it was like, here's your registration, $24. Like I literally danced into the department of motor vehicles and like he'll clicked my way out because I was like, this is so incredible. And of course, like we have different taxes here. So in the end, more or less it washes, but that is a remarkable thing because if that's something I would say is totally unique to New Hampshire is basically the fee structure for the vehicle registration. And it is absolutely crazy, isn't it? Like when you go into the town they're like, yeah, just give us a thousand dollars real quick for your vehicle registration this year. Yeah, and I actually just remembered that I'm probably going to have to get my vehicles inspected too. I don't remember if it's every year, if it's every other year. So not no, only every year, it's every year. So I'm going to have to take like a day off work next week to go get the stupid vehicles inspected because they don't have like a standardized way of doing this. There's no like state office where you bring it all in one shot to get your vehicle inspected and registered. So you have to find some mechanic who's not a crook to say your vehicle is safe to drive on the road. And then True. on top of that, you have to pay the state. It's it's a racket all around. It's like, just just let me drive my car. If it's not safe and I get in a car accident and die, that's on me. Like, just just <laughs> leave me alone. Stay off my lane. Just go away. Just leave me alone. 
Oh, this is so great. I laugh because I, I just know this pain so intimately. I will say, you know what the one thing is that always uh, people find very surprising about New Hampshire? New Hampshire, I believe, is one of two states, I think it's just two now, that if there's no lien on the vehicle, you don't actually have to have auto insurance. So that always surprises people because, of course, if you were just to have an accident with somebody who didn't have auto insurance, then your only recourse is to actually sue them because they're not required in the state as long as there's no lien to actually have auto insurance. Now, of course, like in any state, if you want to break the law, you can forgo auto insurance. But in the state of New Hampshire, it's actually a possible you know, opportunity for you to not have it. And you would still be underneath the law and still be a law abiding citizen that I found it was always interesting. I feel like that is the live for your die right there. It's kind of like, yeah, let me do what I want. If I don't want to have insurance and I own the vehicle, yo, I do what I want. So in New Hampshire, you don't even have to have liability insurance? No, not if you own the vehicle outright. The only reason you'd have to have it is if there's a lien on it. Well, but if you have a lien, you have to have comprehensive though. Yes, correct. But you don't have to have any insurance whatsoever if you own the vehicle in its entirety. That's insanity. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's exactly what I'm saying is to stay off my lawn. But see, see, enforcing liability insurance actually seems like the one thing that makes sense to me that most states do. Because basically, so what it, basically what it says, what most states say is you don't have to protect your property in order to drive a car, but you have to right. demonstrate that you've got some sort of coverage in case you destroy someone else's property. So that actually makes sense to me because they're they're trying to protect the property of of people within the state. Like comprehensive insurance, like that's just protecting your own property and other people's. But yeah, I that's crazy. I did not know Listen, that. Listen, the car thing just doesn't make any sense. Like I've long thought for a a quite some period of time that don't you find it interesting that like in the US at least and this might be I mean, this happens in lots of other countries, but I think it's particularly prevalent in the U.S. Like our entire identity system, like the way that you prove your identity, your age is with your license, which is a permission to drive a motor vehicle. Like everything is connected to the ability to operate a motor vehicle. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can get a non-driver's identification card, too, though. So it's not all tied to a vehicle. But who issues that? The DMV still. Right. Yeah, well, and that that so was the thing. So, you know, it was like you'd go there. You're like, all right, we need you to bring uh, your birth certificate, but it can't be the one you got from the hospital. It has to be one that the state issued. Uh, also, right. your passport and a previous driver's license if it's not expired. But if it's expired, we need you to bring seven chickens to sacrifice. And also you need to learn how to do a handstand and uh, also give the person at the checkout counter a back rub. And then maybe, maybe we'll think about giving you this little plastic card that says who you are. Yeah, that sounds about right. There. So here's the last thing I'll say about this is maybe everybody in the U.S. is familiar with this enactment called the Real ID, which was really just a way to make sure that all the driver's licenses were issued in such a way that they had verified, like you're saying, basically that you are who you say you are by looking at your birth certificate, your social security number, that kind of stuff. So it's a way to just kind of sure up identification. And then of course, on that physical ID itself to provide something that would make it that was like basically incorruptible or that was not easily forged. And so there were two states, once again, that decided that they were not going to honor the Real ID Act or were going to delay it. 
And there were more at first, but there were two that were holds out. And those two are the ones we represent. There was New Hampshire and there was Pennsylvania. Now the Pennsylvania was basically like, we don't have enough time. We have like a ton of citizens and our systems are apparently really antiquated. So we just need more time. We need to do it in phases. New Hampshire at first was like, we're not going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> we just, we just don't care. That seems like too much federal government oversight. They finally acquiesced, but I love that at first they were like, we're just not going to do that. That's not yeah. our jam. Yeah. Well, it, it all boils down to New Hampshire basically saying like, all right, TSA, you don't own me. <laughs> you don't get to tell us what's required to be on a plane or not. And the TSA was like, yeah, we really do. So we really do. If any of your citizens want to fly with their driver's license, then you better get in gear. And so all the citizens were like, hey, guys, can you like do something about this? So, <laughs> yeah. Oh, what a world we live in. One thing I will say in favor of the state of New Hampshire is that when neighboring states decided that they were going to start, they were going to try to charge New Hampshire residents sales tax if they purchase products within those states. So if I go to if you if you live in Vermont, you come to New Hampshire and try to buy something, you're not charged sales tax, but you're supposed to report that to the state of Vermont and pay right. tax, sales tax to them essentially. But it doesn't work the other way. If I go to New Hampshire, I'm supposed there's supposed to be a mechanism whereby I don't have to pay sales tax to the state of Vermont. And there was no mechanism like that. So you get around it by just ordering everything online. But they the, the neighboring states started to say, well, no, if you order stuff online and it comes through our system, we're going to charge sales tax. And our governor was like, nah, no. And so he actually fought it and won. <laughs> so now I, I don't have to pay sales tax if I buy something online. It, it's It's pretty slick. But other than that, Stay out of my business. Stay out of my lawn. The the lack of sales tax thing is pretty nice. I'm, I've actually, I'm somewhat ashamed to admit this, but I've actually tried to figure out a way that I could like purchase a car in New Hampshire and bring it back here. But of course, like they make it very difficult to do that because you have to yeah. keep it there for a certain period of time. And usually that time is excessive, like more than six months. But when the first car that I purchased was actually right over the border in Vermont. And because of this weirdness with New Hampshire, where they don't have the sales tax, there's lots of places. Actually, you purchase a car at the same place. There's lots of places uh, that surround New Hampshire that have gotten sales tax exemptions for this very yep. reason, because nobody would purchase like an expensive item yep. right over the border when you could just go into New Hampshire and like buy your washer, or buy your car. And to this day, uh, the last thing I'll say about this, I, I realize I already said that already, is that um, my mother, your mother-in-law, if, if I'm talking to her about any topic and it's like just casually talking about uh, purchasing <laughs> some item, she'll always say to me like, why don't you buy that here? Like, even if it's like, I'll be like, oh, I had to go out and buy like a pair of pants. She'll be like, don't buy your pants there. Buy them in New Hampshire. <laughs> <Sales tax. laughs> Yeah. So we could we could go a, on about this really all day. Thing. What are you denying? We better we better pull up and get you on track here, get us on track <laughs> yeah. here. All right. Here's my really fast denial. It's coming from an unexpected place. So um I would say only late in life am I coming to like a true and profound appreciation for Star Wars. Now, I know there's a lot <laughs> of people listening to the to our conversations and you in particular. 
have always had a profound appreciation for Star Wars. I've, I've enjoyed the movies, but now I'm seeing like, oh my word, there's like this amazing world that's out there. And so one of the things I endeavored to do was I thought, you know what I need to supplement my movie viewing with is some written literature. And so then I went down the rabbit hole of like the extended Star Wars universe and the things that are canon. And I was like, let's just keep it pure. I will read your Disney canon authorized stuff. And so I picked up this book this, this couple of weeks ago. I read through it. it. Fantastic book was Master and Apprentice. And, but here's the thing that surprised me and I'm kind of denying against is that I was kind of hoping that what would happen is I would experience like the Harry Potter equivalent of Star Wars in that I know, of course, that movies were created often before the written literature. I guess I was thinking that when I picked up these books, it would give me like more deeper, greater scope and breadth of like the Star Wars universe. And that has been true. But what I discovered was like, for instance, this first book, there are characters that are not in the movies. So I was like hoping I'd be better able to relate to people that really love Star Wars, like yourself included, and that I'm growing to appreciate. And yet what I found was I was like, oh, how about this person? And they're like, I don't know that person. And so I discovered that you have to enjoy the books together because I thought like maybe this would just be like a better and grander version of the movies. And it's not entirely that, but it's, it's related. So I guess I'm kind of denying against the fact that my expectations were totally messed up with respect to this, but you've read some of the books, right? I haven't actually. Oh man. You got it specifically see, see, for that reason. Maybe, I think. Yeah, I think that's what I'm denying against is like, I didn't realize that I would, I'd have to get a whole new group of friends who have read the books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the books are, um, the books from what I've heard, I tried to listen to, there's a, a one called Aftermath, which is basically like, it's, there's a, a short trilogy that starts with a book called Aftermath that is supposed to basically fill in the gaps between Return of the Jedi and Force Awakens. So it's supposed to okay. explain like what's happening in like the 30 years or so that happens between those two movies. And I got like I listened to the I was listening to the audiobook and I got like, I don't know, two chapters in. And I was like, no. And I just returned it to Audible and got something different. <laughs> just I just no. couldn't I just couldn't do it. I couldn't get into it. <laughs> well, I'm going to, I think, try to make my way through and. I know there are some books that are basically like literary versions of the movies. And again, this is all a little bit complicated because of uh, Disney's involvement in this. Yeah. But if anybody's read them, like, I feel like I need to talk to you because now I have characters in my head that are, again, it's I, the nice thing about if you, I would recommend if you want to read some Star Wars literature, one, it's super entertaining and it is very good. But second, I would encourage you to actually go with the canon stuff so it doesn't contradict any of the storylines that you probably are familiar yeah. with by way of the movies. But by way of warning, you're about to get like, it's it's not, again, it doesn't contradict, but you're going to get whole new storylines of characters yeah. that don't actually exist in the movies. There's nothing wrong with that, but I guess I was hoping to like identify with people in a more deep way. And so I'm realizing that I need to find those people that have read the books. Yeah, what you really need to do if you want to do that, if you want to resonate with the main characters more, is you need to watch the Clone Wars cartoon that uh, Disney did and the uh, Star Wars Rebel cartoon that Disney did. And that actually will give you what you're looking for as far as like expanding the canon universe, like the, the core characters. You'll learn a lot more about Anakin Skywalker uh, you learn a lot more about like the nature of the rebellion, the clone war, like the clone troopers get a sort of an actual personality. That's the way to go. But I, I don't know about the books. I haven't read much of them. 
No, they're, they're super great. It's just, it was a little bit unexpected for me. And one of the things that I've noticed that's been a little bit strange is, uh, so maybe I'm unique in that I have not seen the prequels. I haven't seen any of them. So oh. I picked up, this is supposed to be the first book, which occurs before the prequel. So I'm like, I feel like I'm primed for like some prequel action now. I actually want to see the first movie, which I, I've never seen. I know some of the characters, like I know Jar Jar, but just by extension of like the zeitgeist of people making fun of him. But the book inadvertently, like there's a, there's kind of like an afterward in this first book that I read. It actually spoiled something that I did not know about. And I asked some people that are more versed with Star Wars and they were like, oh yeah, that's, yeah, that's something that's going to happen. I was like, how did the book spoil something that I didn't even know about? So maybe I'm a unique, in a unique situation because I haven't seen the prequels. You'll have to tell me off air what that is. I mean, you you can just skip episode one. Just go straight past episode one. There's really nothing. <laughs> there's really nothing in episode one that's actually all that important. Okay, so, like, so here's. I feel like we've got to talk about this real quickly, even though we're we're far past the normal like a lot of time for affirmations. And we are like we're, more, we're already. This is more than fifty percent of the way into this episode. <laughs> yeah, it's it's already blown up. So here's the thing: is like uh, I've heard that about the prequel. And I have some information because people like have spoken about it with me. And now I've, I've tried to gather more information. Like I've, based on reading stuff, I'm like, what is this about? What is that about? Is that really true? Um, but I hear that the prequel, the first one, is not super good. Um, but there's a lot of joking about the extent of the pod racing that occurs in the first one. <laughs> so now I'm just curious to see the pod racing. Yeah. Pod racing is visually appealing, but it really make, it adds nothing to the storyline. <laughs> The whole purpose of pod racing is to establish that Anakin Skywalker is force sensitive. And there are literally a thousand other better ways that they could have done that in order to uh, do that. So here, here's the thing about Star Wars. Okay. This is going to be, <laughs> this, this is going to so be, great. we'll steal a book out of James White's. This is going to be a mega episode. We're going to have to go along. Here's the thing about Star Wars. It's 50% universe building and 50% how do we sell toys, right? That Those are the two motivating Fair factors enough. for Star yeah. Wars. So pod racing, they were like, all right, how do we sell video games? Pod racing. We need to make, a, we need to make something we can turn into a video game. Okay. How right. do we make that so it's not totally, like, random in this universe? Oh, well, no human is supposed to be able to do pod racing, so we'll have this little kid who can do it. And the only reason why he can is because he's he can use the Force and he doesn't know it. That that's the extent of pod racing and how it got into the Star Wars universe. You can ask Conrad. I'm sure he'll tell you the exact same like account for why that's there. And there are literally a million different ways they could have done that. Like they could have made Anakin demonstrate that he's force sensitive that don't involve right. this weird, stupid pod racing scene. And if they just took the <laughs> pod racing scene and took it seriously instead of making it like all jokey jokey all the time. You'll see it when you yeah. see that it, 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 it's just bad. Like they tried to do this like sports announcer thing and the sports announcer is like straight out of like Monday night football. It's just really poorly put together. Uh, they could have done a better job with it and they just didn't. Uh, I love it. This see, is disappointing. So to wrap this all up, like I guess I'm a part denial, part affirmation because it's only because I started reading it and becoming a little more interested in just the storyline that I've been able to have these really fun conversations and get to hear people talk about this because the I can't tell you of the informal survey that I've done how polarizing 
the pod racing thing is. It's apparently a super big deal. And apparently it's it's fairly long in the movie. It is. It's like it's like 30% of the movie is about pod racing. Yeah, this is great. I cannot wait to watch this because I haven't seen it. And so my expectations are already super low because of how yeah. everybody's spoken about it. So maybe that's the best place to go into it. Like maybe I'm maybe I'm like in the right environment in the right state of mind to watch it now. And I'm kind of excited about that. You should wait until we're at the beach for to watch these movies so I can watch them with you. But like the the right way to watch episode one <laughs> is to just like watch the first like introductory scene where you, you get introduced to, to Obi-Wan Kenobi and Qui-Gon Jinn and you understand the relationship and kind of explains this Padawan master relationship. And then just yeah. like skip all the way past the pod racing scene until they're leaving Tatooine. And then skip again until when they come back to Naboo. And I know like none of those places make any sense to you. But if you just skip those big chunks where like all the time that they're on Naboo and Tatooine the first time, just skip all that and then go next straight to it. The movie would be like 30 minutes. It'd be great. It'd be like something you could just tack on to the front half of the next movie. And the next movie, don't even get me started on the next movie. We'll, we'll save that for another cast. There are so many <laughs> object lessons about uh, lust and the Pence rule. Let's just put it this way. If Anakin Skywalker followed the Pence Graham rule, then we wouldn't have Darth Vader. So <laughs> let's just put it that way. Uh, that's great. Uh, Six I, feet for the, the force. Things, one of the many things I love about our conversations is our seeming ability to bring together things that should never exist in a single conversation into one seamless topic. Yes. Now that we have 20 minutes left to talk about 18 verses in Micah, <laughs> let's get rocking. Yeah. Let's, so let's get into it. And the thing about this is this is like a horrible time to extend affirmations and denials because this is the very last, the ultimate, not the penultimate, the last episode of the Micah cast. So we're bringing this all to a close and I'm actually been very excited about this passage because for all that we've been through and we have been through a lot with respect to the topics we've talked about, everything from disobedience and sinfulness to cannibalization to the destruction that God's going to bring on his people. The way this ends is so absolutely glorious that really yeah. we should probably talk about it for three hours. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the book of Micah has been full of ups and downs. Like there's judgment, there's promises of salvation, there's promises of, of physical deliverance for God's people. There's promises of utter destruction of the land of Jerusalem. And, you know, there are some prophets that end on kind of a dour note, sort of a dark, you know, like the book of Malachi, the, the last word of the book of Malachi is curse. Like there, there are some prophets right. that end that way. Micah does not do that. And I really appreciate it as I was reading through these last 10, 10 verses here. Um, he really comes at this and God really does leave the people of Israel and by extension, the Christian church with this message of hope. 
and and the gospel like you know people talk about how like Isaiah 53 is like the fourth gospel or like the gospel of Isaiah but this section could really be called like the gospel of Malachi and it, it has all of those same notes of theology that we've talked about throughout the whole book there's some pretty clear christological allusions here there's discussion uh, that sort of leads us to talk about the elect and about how God God chooses to save a remnant and then there really is um, there really is this element of covenant theology that comes out in the text that's really just right on the face of it. I totally agree. So without further teasing, let me read the full scope of these verses here, the, all that's left in the book of Micah, and then we can chat about some of the pieces that are particularly, we think, really draw us in. So let me read beginning in verse 8 all the way to the end of the book. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemies will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. A day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river and from sea to sea, from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt. I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like the serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of the strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord, our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Who yeah. is a God like you pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So there is so much going on in this section. And if it weren't, <laughs> if it weren't for the fact that we were really trying to hit a really like special event on episode 179 and that the timing is important for that, I would have actually like cut this into two episodes. So yeah, for sure. This, you know, we've got we've got this interplay in the the text throughout the whole book of Micah between sort of judgment and promise blessing and curses and salvation. And this section here sort of takes all of that and it shows that God God culminates his prophecy in the book of Micah on this promise of salvation. And it really, I mean, it really starts in uh, verse seven. It says, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. And you can really look at verses eight through 18 as almost like an explanation of 
what that verse means, what it means right. for, for Micah to look to the Lord and wait for the God of his salvation and for God to hear him. And, you know, one of the things that I've noticed as I've read through Micah and I've read through, I've read through the book probably a dozen times since we started the series. And sometimes it's really hard to figure out who exactly is the speaker, right? Sometimes it's really clear that Micah's talking. Sometimes it's really clear I mean, Micah is obviously talking through the whole thing because he's the writer, but sometimes it's really clear he's intending to sort of speak in the voice of God or to speak in the voice of the wicked people or to speak in the voice of the remnant. Right. But this is a section where the commentators have kind of remarked, it's not always clear exactly who he's supposed to be representing here. So, you know, some of the options are that Micah is speaking basically as a representative of all of the remnant people who will one day be saved by the Lord. And so, so the people of Israel, true spiritual Israel is saying, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I've sinned against him until the Lord has pleaded my cause or pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. And there's a little bit of a reversal of expectation there. If we are reading it and we think that this is, uh, Micah speaking as a representative of the elect, because if he's bearing the indignation of the Lord because he sinned against him, what we would expect is not that the Lord would execute judgment for the people of Israel, but that the Lord would execute judgment on the people of Israel. So in that right. case, there's this reversal of expectation. However, I actually think you can make a good argument that this is actually the prophet sort of looking forward in time or, or being given a glimpse in time. And it's actually, uh, granted, you can't do this in a strict sense, but in a sense, it's, it's Jesus Christ speaking on behalf of his people, right? Obviously right. Jesus didn't sin against the Lord, but he did take the sins of the people on, onto him. So when he pleads in front of the Lord, you know, the Lord's prayer is not just the Lord's model prayer, but it's also the Lord praying, right? So we can think of, um, we can think of what, you know, the Lord goes into the presence of God and he's praying. You can essentially picture him praying the Lord's prayer. And in that prayer, it's forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. Well, Jesus prays that prayer, even though he has not committed any personal sin. And so in verse right. nine here, Christ will bear the indignation of the Lord because he bearing the sin of the people have sinned against God until the Lord pleads the cause of his people and executes judgment for the Lord Jesus Christ, right? So, so there's this Christological Trinitarian nexus here that the, the son as, as the God man goes into the Lord's presence and pleads, uh, pleads to the Lord for his people because they have sinned against him. So he, he comes representing sinners and he pleads his, he, he pleads his case to the Lord, but he has to bear the indignation of the Lord. But then Trinitarianly speaking, the son as God executes judgment because he has also pled his case to the father. So there, there's right. this nexus here that happens that I think is really interesting. There's also some people who say like, well, this is just the wicked people, but the Lord doesn't execute judgment on them. He executes judgment for them. Right. It, yeah. I, I like where you're going with that because there's something here that's like tremendously deep and beautiful just by itself. Many have commentated, I'm, I'm not the first, that this has like a hymn feel to it, that there's something in these last verses that is almost song-like in the expression. Yeah. And that's almost why like, I pause so dramatically between this shift in the topic at hand there and what's being said. And there is something about understanding 
who we're talking about and who is speaking. So we spoke last time, I think, about when we looked at Micah 7 in the beginning part, that he is describing this universal corruption society. And there's, of course, this scarcity of righteous men and trying to find them is like trying to find fruit after the crop has been picked. But in verse seven, there's this contrast drawn between like the speaker and the corrupt society in which he lives. But when we get to verses eight and following, like as you already noted, the prophet Micah seems to identify himself with the community of Israel and to speak for them. And there's something also wrapped up in that where there's this kind of eschatological focus. There's something beyond, but that applies to the current time. And there's this telescoping into the future as to whom is speaking and what they're speaking about. And so what strikes me about this in kind of addition to what you said is there's like a boldness in Micah here, despite his sinful state that I think has to point us toward that nexus that you're referring to. Because I think the reason Micah is so bold in his brokenness is because he knows God. He knows that what is really amazing and unique about God, which he asks, who is, who is a God like you? That means that, of course, there is no God like the one we're talking about, about Yahweh. God's ways, of course, are higher than our ways. God's ways are higher than any deity in the world. And what is God's uniqueness. And it's that God pardons iniquity and passes over the transgression of his people. And that's the peculiar uniqueness about the God of the Bible. There is no God like that. And so I think that should propel us into this idea that if we do not feel our sin and guilt, then we will not go deep into the pardon of God. But it also works the other way. If you don't know the depths of God's pardon, you won't know to go deep within your own sin. Yeah. And the only way that I think that we can understand this is, is he's talking about a representative that somehow can be the one who intercedes between us and God, but has the right and the authority to plead the case. Right. And so in, in this whole last series, we talked about God as both just and justifier, that that was the way that we were to properly weigh out theories of atonement. And I think that's what we're seeing here. It's embedded. It's like impounded in what he's saying. But we have to look for it. It's not that it's so obvious, but it is plain. Does that make sense? It does. You know, I was reading in um, Herman Witsius today, and I just want to find this the spot because I wasn't reading in preparation for this, but there's a section here that I, I highlighted like the whole section because um, it was just so good. Um, this is wonderful podcasting for me to like scroll through my notes trying to find it. <laughs> Um, but, but this section that I read in in Witsius today is on the person of the surety and he goes through and it's a totally classically reformed formulation. There's nothing in there that would be, um, surprising or unexpected in terms of how he, you know, reasons through this, but he basically is talking about the reason why it's the case that Christ had to be both God and man. Um, and so he, he has this quote here. Um, do you need me to create like some kind of yeah? Could you do like Jeopardy music or something? <laughs> All right, I this found is, it. This is why we're podcasting professionals. Yes, I got it. So he says here, he says, seeing that man therefore had by sin shamefully defaced the image of God, which he received in the first creation, and thereby most justly exposed himself to the hatred of God. Was it not worthy of God to restore that image by his own essential image in the human nature he had assumed? 
in order by that means to open a way for our return to the favor and love of the Father. In fine, could the philanthropy and love of the Father be more illustriously displayed to us than in giving his only begotten Son to us and for us, that in him we might behold the Father's glory. And so so the idea here is that not only does it have to be a person who is both man and both God, but it's actually fitting because of who the son is in relation to the father and because of how the son functions as the word and image of the father in the act of creating that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity is the only proper person, even out of the three persons of the Trinity to bring about our salvation because it was, and this is actually reasoning straight out of Athanasius. There's, there's a section in Athanasius where he says this almost exactly. I think that if, um, if the church fathers, uh, if, if the Reformation folks used footnotes, he probably would have been footnoting this. But it really is just this beautiful expression where we understand that the, the mediatory work of Christ is not something that was like all of a sudden blown onto the scene in the pages of the New Testament. It's not like there was right. not this this movement in the Old Testament. You know, when I was reading this section, the first thing that thought to me that that popped into my mind, especially when we go down to this next one, it's almost like Micah is quoting Job here, right? Because yeah, Job sure. has that section in the middle where he says, basically, if only there was somebody who could put his arm on my shoulder and plead my case before the yes. Lord. And then he has yes, that, that, exactly. that weird sort of weird section where he says, I know my redeemer lives and I will see him in my flesh, which some commentators will say like, well, that's not really about Jesus, but I don't know how you get around it. But then here you see in verse 10, my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? Right. It seems like he's actually thinking about the book of Job and how Job's wife basically said, like, where is your where is your God in all the midst of this? But just like Job had this hope that we don't actually know other than that Job was acting in some some prophetic fashion. We don't actually know why Job would have talked about this mediator like th that's not something that was common in other ancient Near Eastern religions at the time. And in that area right. to talk about this mediatory office that sort of like mitigates the wrath of God and, and pleads the case of of the human to the gods that just didn't exist. And so Job operates in this prophetic office. We see that in Isaiah, there's all sorts of references in Isaiah 53 and other places. And then in Micah here, there's this clear statement that God himself has to plead the cause of the righteous uh, or of the unrighteous in order to justify the ungodly. So, I mean, this is Christological right. through and through. It, it really is. And in fact, like God is really the only one that is qualified to make that kind of plea. It's the, like you said, it's, it's unique with respect to the fact that in this prophetic voice, as Micah expressed it, the conclusion of the chapter and actually the whole book dwells on the fact that God's grace will ultimately triumph over his people's sin. And that is what I think should lead us to like immediate doxology because yeah. for Christians, as we see it in Micah, this posture is grounded and intensified by knowing Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross. So for Micah, Jesus was only a hope in chapter five. And he actually says, but you, O Bethlehem, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. And then we get all this wonderful language again, right at the end here about this shepherd again, the shepherding, this good shepherd laid down his life for his sheep. 
And when he did, we see with greater clarity the greatness of our sin that's required the extent of the suffering and the greatness of God's resolve to pardon it. And so the brokenness and the brokenheartedness and the boldness, all these things are intensified. And I think that's what Micah is drawing out in these final verses. And so one of the things I think is really interesting is, I know you already know this, but I think it's worth highlighting that really to help us understand divine forgiveness I find it amazing that the Heidelberg Catechism refers to this passage wherein the prophet Micah marvels at the greatness of God's pardon. And we can grow so accustomed to this being what's normative and normal that we lose this. So Micah 7, 18 emphasizes the uniqueness of the Lord's forgiveness, revealing that there's no other deity that can offer the same kind of pardon that the one true God, the covenant Lord of Israel offers to his people. And so in light of the entire Bible, God's forgiveness is incomparable because he forgives us in Christ Jesus, of course, without compromising his holy justice. That's like Romans 3. Only the God of the scripture is both just and justifier. I know that's where we ended in the whole atonement thing, but I was just blown away, actually like just bowled over by here we have it expressed again with Micah. And it's done, it's just put front and center. The other gods of this world, who of course are no, not gods at all, but really demons masquerading as gods, compromise their self-proclaimed righteousness when they quote-unquote forgive because they do not demand true atonement for sin. And so what I think is so telling is if you want to give a litmus test of whether something is true or false, whether a worldview is, is actual or not, whether it reflects reality, is this test of the just and justifier that you're going to find that there's always a compromise that undoes the entire worldview. And only in Christianity do you have a cohesiveness that brings together both a true forgiveness that provides an absolution for sin, but that also brings judgment upon the sin itself. And here's Micah pointing us to that fact. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good, a good point. And you know, one thing uh, I kind of want to talk a little bit about before we wind down is, you know, we haven't seen, Obviously, Micah is a Jewish prophet. There's there's overtones and themes of covenant throughout the book. But what we see at the end here is a real stark reliance on covenant theology. And one of the criticisms right. of covenant theology, whether it is in its you know 1646 Westminster form or its 1689 uh, you know federalism form, whatever reformed federal theology has a, a couple different forms. But one of the criticisms is that it's basically a novel approach that was unknown before the Reformation, which historically just isn't the case. But when you look at this text, all of the major themes of covenant theology are are present, right? So shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance. Well, if, if we read this Christologically, like we have been, the inheritance that the son receives is the inheritance which the father gives him according to the terms of the covenant of works, right? Yes. But then we go down here, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, right? Well, there's a reference to the Exodus, which is a major event in covenant redemptive history. And then here's where I think it gets interesting. So one of the themes we've, uh, we haven't talked a lot about, but is this theme of the seed of, of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Right. Genesis 315. I will put enmity. Uh, I will put enmity against you. Right. He's speaking to the serpent serpent. The woman will have enmity against the serpent and her seed will crush the serpent's head and the serpent will, will bruise or wound the, the seeds heal. 
Well, the enemies of God and of God's people here, what are they, what are they consigned to? What's their ultimate curse here at the end of the book? They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. Right. So the, 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 the thing that they are cursed with, or the thing that they are finally consigned to in this desolate place, because the inhabitants of the earth have been sinful is the same exact curse that the serpent bears in the garden, that he will crawl on his belly, that he will eat the dust and that they will, uh, they will fear not only God, but they will fear God's people. Right. So the curse on the serpent was not just that he'd be afraid of God, but that there would be enmity between the woman and the serpent, that there would be fear in the serpent of the woman. And then here we go. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of what? His inheritance. He doesn't retain his anger forever, but he delights in steadfast love. Well, then if we go down to verse 20, this ends with a statement of continuity with the covenant given to Jacob. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So this book ends by basically proclaiming that the Lord Jesus Christ will redeem his people by pleading their cause before the father, that he will be faithful to the covenant he made with Abraham and Jacob. And that because of these things, the enemies of God who are the seed of the serpent will face the same fate as the devil himself. Like you couldn't get any more covenant theology than that. If you tried. <laughs> Sorry. I think you're right. That's a good one. That sounded like just really aggressive and I loved it. it it's true though. Like you couldn't, you couldn't, um, you couldn't put this together in a way that is more blatantly what the Westminster. And I, I think to a lesser degree, of course, the 1689 position, like this is federal theology. Like this is, this is uh, what it is. You couldn't put it together in a way that supports that theology more than this. And that's because that right. theology is derived from the scriptures. Yes, exactly. That, yeah. Honestly, that's probably where we should probably wind this down. Cause that was, that was right on. I totally agree with that. Yeah. I would drop my mic, but it's super expensive. <laughs> so don't, but drop this mics. is like the wonderful thing about what we've been talking about is it really, if people have been tracking with us and hopefully they've been reading along, but you could sit down of course, and read the book of Micah in a single sitting. It really is a journey. I, I mean, it, it's heart wrenching. It is grotesque at times it is both beautiful and it is absolutely ugly. And so to end in this place where we see that God is going to win out, that actually, you know, this whole idea that of Rob Bell, you know, this idea of love wins is of course wrong on so many epic levels, but it's not love that wins primarily. It's grace that wins. It's right. God sovereignly choosing his elect, the inheritance, as you've already said, and bring it about in a way that is covenantal in a way that shows that all along, this is actually his profound and beautiful plan. And yeah. here's just one corner of the scriptures in which we find the people in both their, their current circumstance and then Micah pointing to the grand narrative where we see that grace wins because God is loving and full of grace. And not only that, but I, I, like the argument that you're making in terms of this covenantal thing is also the same one that we've been talking about with respect to the fact that this is what makes God so different, our God so different. This is what makes him the one and the true God is it's being manifest 
in the way that salvation is coming about in a covenantal way. So, because if you look at any other religious worldview, it's going to be absent this kind of covenantal environment that we're talking about. Yeah. And that I think is where we see both logic and human reasoning and spirituality and uh, God's redemptive plan all coming together such that there is a cohesiveness that is not circumstantial or by accident. And so even within Micah, we have this grand proof for the fact that God exists and that he is real and that this is the only way, in fact, that humankind can make sense of what is this sin and who is this God and what are these these standards that we have embedded and impounded in our lives and written on our hearts and our consciences all of that comes together, this grand culmination. And it's almost surprising to say, oh, here we find it in this little minor prophet of Micah who is writing in the most horrible of circumstances. And yet it is this reflection of here is strength for today and hope for tomorrow. Like, could anybody conceive of this? Like, could, could the human mind conceive of this type of thing and put it on paper? I, I just don't think so. No, I, I agree. Like every other religious system that's out there that is man-made. So everything except the Judaism of the Old Testament and Christianity of the New, uh, everything else involves man somehow paying off God or yeah. somehow being good enough to garner God's favor, uh, either good enough to outweigh his displeasure um, or good enough to obligate him to do something for us. There, there is no other religious system that really truly uh, operates on the basis of a gracious God saving, not because of some cosmic principle that he's obligated to or some sort of cosmic uh, force that motivates him to save. But as Micah says here, because he delights in steadfast love. Right he on. saves us not because there's some reason to that is external to himself, but simply because it is in his nature to be gracious and loving and to redeem those who are far from him. That's that's in his very nature to do. And, and you know, there's complex theology that doesn't that explains how that doesn't make somehow justification and eternal reality. We don't have to get into that. You can read James Dalazal's book. He talks about it. And I think it's the last chapter. Right. But God is the redeemer in eternity past, just as he's the creator prior to creating. He's the redeemer prior to redeeming. He doesn't become the redeemer because he redeems. He redeems because he is the redeemer. And that, that's exactly what Mike is saying here, is that God saves the remnant of his inheritance because he delights in doing so. And we have to plant our flags here because I would say most of the time, our modern postmodern culture wants us to believe that religions are fundamentally the same and only mm -hmm. different on the peripherals. And what right. we have here is a clear indication that they're fundamentally different right. and only similar on the peripherals. When we think, speak about things like love, we might find some overlap with respect to some really ephemeral definition of that term. But fundamentally, the Bible makes it clear, even by asking the question, who is like our God? And of course, the rhetorical answer is no one. There right. is no comparison. And so I feel like that should give us an immense sense of security and pride 
only from the perspective of that when we rely on God, we are proud that we come to the one who is the maker of all things, who tells us the truth about all things, who has power over all things, and who has redeemed us from all things, but only because he is loving and he exhibits gracefulness. Therefore, we cannot yeah. be proud because we have something within us that ingratiates ourselves to God, as you've already said. But we ought to be proud in the sense that we know this God, and so that should fire us up to, of course, bring forward an evangelical presentation and a living, in a sense, that brings glory to God and points to him in all things. And so I think that Micah calls us even within this, like he gives the challenge at the end of this podcast, which is go and live likewise. Almost like Paul says, you know, live in a manner that's worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And so if we know the one true God, then we ought to be about proclaiming the one true God, both yeah. not only in how we behave, but particularly in the words that we speak and in the gospel that we share that this is it, loved ones. I mean, this is, this is everything. There is no other message. There is only one name under heaven by which men may be saved. And that is Jesus Christ. So what a beautiful thing to know at the end of the day that you are on that rock. You know, there's so many things that seem unknown in our world right now that seem confused, that seem like there are many different ways of understanding. And this is not one of those things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that is as good a way to wrap up Micah cast as any. And since this is the only, <laughs> as this is the only Micah cast that there is, as far right. as I know, Right. This is not only the definitive episode on Micah 7, 8 through 18. This is the definitive series of any podcast on the book of Micah. It is. That's true. And in case somebody is wondering what's lined up for the future, one word, awesome. That's all yes. I'm going to say. We got, <laughs> we got stuff coming up. We're going to kick it old school. We're going to be doing a couple of episodes on different topics that uh, are, have kind of come up in the course of this. We're going to answer some questions, but you can look forward to next week. Of course, we've got Bookcast. We're back in Reformed Preaching by Dr. Joel Beakey. After that, we've got an episode for some questions we're going to address. And then after that, hopefully something even more awesome. It's true. I will give you listeners, dear listeners, a hint. The number 179 is significant. <laughs> Do you so, think anybody knows why? If they actually, if they're a really good listener, I know this? we have mentioned this. How about this? The first person to email info at reformbrotherhood.com and correctly tell us why the number 179 is significant gets a free mug. Okay. Let's let's okay. up the stakes. They get a I free like a free limited edition Reform Brotherhood beer stein that is not so Whoa. limited edition, but they're going to get a beer stein for free. The first person to email us uh, and tell us why episode one seventy nine is important gets a free Reform Brotherhood beer stein. I love it. That's the way we need to go out. Yes, and Jesse, we haven't done this in a while, but where where do you get such things like a Reform Brotherhood mug or a beer stein? Oh, that is a really good question. And I'm glad you asked it because my mind just went blank on the website. <laughs> uh, you can find all of our gear at, at I almost said uh, mission aware. That's not right. Confessional wear. Uh, our brother, Raphael, who puts together all of our merchandise, he, you know, he's been such a good friend to the show. He's he, so good. He puts together awesome looking stuff. 
Uh, he's helped other podcasts get set up. He did a bunch of merch for uh, According to Christ before they shut down. For He's got cool stuff for Reformed Pilgrims. Uh, there's a sweet new mug that they made with their new logo on it that's really, really uh, almost said dope. I, apparently, I'm like... I don't know. Yeah, is that yeah. what the is that what the kids are saying these days? No, uh, I mean the kids from 1990. Yeah, yeah. But you can go to confessionalwear.com and there's a section there for the Reformed Brotherhood. You can buy T-shirts. You can buy the 16 ounce mugs, uh, which we love. You fit your whole hand in the handle. You can buy, uh, still can buy a yes. Reformed Brotherhood beer stein, a hoodie. There's all sorts of cool stuff, and we're looking to add some more sweet stuff to there as well. So do us a favor, help out the show, help out Raphael by going and checking out all the gear. There's lots of other cool stuff too. And as I said, the first person to email info at reformbrotherhood.com and tell us why episode 179 is significant uh, gets a free beer stein. I love it. All right, well... Until next time, Jesse, honor everyone. Love the Brotherhood. What if I'm part of the Brotherhood?